Shalom, and I hope all is well. My name is Yitzchak Schiffman. Thanks for tuning into this podcast, and I hope you enjoy the Torah classes in it. Now, on to the episode. Today's daf, Meseches Babakama, is daf tes, nine. We're beginning about uh, eight lines from the bottom of Ches Amud Beis. We're going to have five sections in today's daf. The first... We're going to discuss scenarios where a person sold a property and then retraction because someone came to claim the property. We'll discuss two different statements and two versions of each one within Abaye. The second will revert back to Zayin Aleph, actually, a, co- a contradiction we had there, which was between Meitav and Yashav Larabos. And uh, we'll bring another resolution of that, which is Rav Huna and Tesimut Aleph. And Rav Asi will support him, as we'll see. Turning to the Tess Amud Aleph, the very bottom of the page now, we're going to discuss the idea of how much money you should spend on Hidr Mitzvah. And in the fourth section, we'll discuss a new Mishnah, which teaches us the levels of responsibility of your property damaging. And in the final section, we'll discuss is the Bryce's clarification of this concept of Chavti Bishmirasa Chatias Niska. So let's get started. About eight lines from the bottom of Ches Amud Beis. So we're holding Amr Abaye. And we're going to have two versions in Abaye to start off the day here. Just as a clarification, we know there's two ways you could sell an item. You could either sell an item with achrayus or you could sell an item without achrayus. What's the difference? Responsibility. Generally, the rule is if you sell property with, achray, with, with a document, it's assumed that there is a level of responsibility or um, protection, insurance on that property, which would mean that if I had a balchov, someone that I owed money to, and he claimed that property from you, you you would come back to me, and I have responsibility to reimburse you because I gave you property that was encumbered. That's the idea. Okay. But if I sell you property without achrayas, for example, I sell without a document, balpeh, so then even if it's taken away from you, that's your loss. That's just too bad. But you can't come back to me to reclaim the monies that you had spent in order to purchase those properties. That's the difference between achrayas and not, and not achrayas. Now, Abayah says as follows. Amr Abayah, If Reuven sold a field to Shimon be'achrayas, so with responsibility, with coverage, v'asabachov de Reuven v'taraf mishimon, and then the balchov, is balchov debtor or creditor? I always confuse the two. Debtor, credit. No, what is it called? If I owe you money, then you're my. Uh, if, I if I owe you money, then you're my. Creditor. Okay. So the creditor of Reuven arrives v'taraf Shimon, and he takes the field from the purchaser, which is Shimon. So dina hu dina So says the Gemara. By, by the, the rule is that Reuven is allowed to engage in litigation with the Balchov who's claiming property from Shimon, the purchaser of Reuven. So Rashi explains over here what that means is that Reuven can start getting involved in this court case and say to the Balchov, swear to me that I didn't pay you yet. Meaning he can begin to take the position of Shimon so that property is not removed from Shimon's possession because ultimately, since he sold it with Achrayas, what's going to happen now is Shimon's going to come back to Reuven. So he's a, he's, a, he's a litigant in this case and he can have the Balchov swear that he didn't receive payment already. 
and the Balchov is unable to say to Reuven, that you're not my litigant, so get out of my face. He can't say that to Amarle because Reuven could say, if you remove the property from Shimon, he'll come back to me. So therefore I am a litigant and I have the ability to cause you to swear. And that's version number one. There's another version, that even if Reuven sold it to Shimon without Achrayis, which means Shimon cannot come back and reclaim monies, Reuven could still get involved making this Balchov swear in court to Amar Leh because Reuven could explain to the Balchov, I don't want Shimon to have complaints against me. It means I don't want Shimon to be upset at me that I sold him property that was claimed away from him. So therefore, I do have a stake in this. I have a reason that I need to get involved. I'm a litigant. I can cause you to swear that you didn't receive payment from me already. Okay, let's move on now. Another idea about sales in this nature. If Reuven sells a property without achrayus, means without coverage, now, generally it's without achrayus, yes. Why? That's just how that's just how it goes. Generally, well, there's a reason for it also, but generally the rule is that if it's with a document, even if you don't write in the document necessarily of coverage, we assume that's called to cipher. We assume this, the sofer forgot to write it in, but the assumption is it's covered. And if it's oral, if it's just a verbal loan or a verbal sale, it doesn't have coverage necessarily. So the Gemara talks about how the, the idea of a document is spreads the word. It creates a coal in town. So it creates the knowledge that this is something that has happened, that exists in the world. When I borrow money from you, for example, without some sort of a documentation, nobody knows about that. It doesn't release my Right, meaning the point, well, it does, because then you, sh in terms of claiming back property, it would hurt future buyers if I sell off property, and there's claims against it that nobody knows about. No knows about. So therefore, documents create a call, oral loans don't, or, or sales don't necessarily create that call. Okay. So if Reuven sells a field to Shimon without Achrayus, now, before the sale went entirely through, we'll see exactly what stage that we're at right now, Asikin, which are protesters, emerged against that property. It means there were people who showed up saying, that property is really ours, it wasn't his to sell off. I was thinking about it, it's like the occupiers. This guy's an occupier. This is our property, he's an occupier. So like this, <clears throat> if the purchaser had not yet done chazaka, we know as we'll explain momentarily what chazaka is, it's a proprietary action, which means he does some sort of an action that creates ownership on that field. We'll see what the example the Gemara gives us in a moment. But if he has not yet done chazaka, so the purchaser is still allowed to retract. It means he could say, oh, I didn't realize that you have people claiming against your property. I don't want to get involved in this complicated property. I haven't yet done chazaka. Farshman speak out, a Tosfus learned he hadn't yet given money either because if he'd given money, right. money is a way of Kenyan for karka. So now I'm allowed to retract. Now why are you allowed? What's the chiddush in that? So the halacha, Rabbanan said, if you made a deal and you retract, there's a curse, mishapara, that is associated with it. But in this scenario, since I haven't yet done chazak, I haven't done a real action yet, I could still retract, it's not a problem. 
However, if I've already done chazaka, the purchaser already did chazaka, so the purchaser cannot retract and he's forced to pay. Again, they haven't taken the property and seized the property. There's just rumors against it. There's people claiming it. So he would still have to pay and go through with the transaction. My time, well, what's the reason? To Amar Lay, because the seller could tell the buyer, right? a bag full of air you knew about and you accepted. means there were issues with this field. You accepted it. You did chazaka. And therefore, you can't retract anymore. Yeah, yeah. So you have to do your, you have to do your due diligence when it comes to purchasing property. You're right. The, the, the buyer should insist on having a document. You're right. Says the Gemara, when does Chazaka take effect? Says the Gemara, when they would trample or tread on the border of the field. So I always understood it means is that walking on the border of the field, it indicates ownership, it indicates. But I saw over there actually, and I think the Rashbam says that they used to raise the borders of the property slightly in order to improve the properties. So when he's done that and he's walked around the properties, another way to look at it is they would analyze the property. You walk around the property to see, it's like you get a test on a house. You, you hire a company to t- test the electric and the plumbing and all of that before you purchase. That already would be considered a Kenyan of Chazaka that according to this, what? An inspection, and you can't retract. But now, ver- the first version goes like this. It's specifically when he sold, he purchased the property without achrayas. So in such a scenario, only if he's done chazaka is he no longer able to retract. If he hasn't done chazaka, he could retract. But if he's done, if he bought the field with achrayas, so that even after chazaka, he could retract. Now, why could he retract? Because if he bought it with achrayas, says the Gemara, if he bought it with Achrayas, what's going to happen now is even if the field is seized from him, what's he going to do? He's going to go back to the original owner. The purchaser will say, you owe me money back. So just like you're going to have to pay me back then, I'll just, I'll just retract now and you keep your property and keep your problems. That's the first version. Because Amri, but the second version goes, Achrayas Nami, that even if he bought it with Achrayas, the purchaser cannot retract if he's done Chazaka. To Amr Lay, because the seller can tell the buyer, He could say, Look, show me the document of seizure, and I'll be happy to relinquish money that you owe me. Meaning to say, is until the property has been seized from you, all of that's baloney, it's nothing, nobody is having any real claims against you, and therefore you owe me the money. So according to the second version, even if it was with Achrayas, the purchaser cannot retract if he's done chazaka because the seller could say look there's nothing real that's happened yet and therefore pay me you'll deal later if it's seized from you we'll deal with that issue okay let's move on to the second section now this really refers back to a gemara back on zion amad aleph we had a contradiction on zion amad aleph on one hand the torah tells us if you damage somebody it says metava aretz you have to pay metavs a day the best of your land the other hand the pasuk says yashiv it's actually written by the damage of Bor in Parshish Mishpatim. It says Yashiv that he pays and he returns the money. The extra lashon of Yashiv, the Brisa deduced, means even you, you can even pay back with Subin. Subin is animal feed. So it was a contradiction. Are you forced to pay back with the best of your land or are you forced to pay back with uh, movables, with Subin? So we gave answers there. And now the Gemara of Huna refers back to that, which Rashi says is only brought here. Because we first had to clarify the whole sugyas of Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yishmoel, but now Rav Huna addresses that question again. So Rav Huna Amar, I kesef, I metav. That either you could pay with kesef or metav, meaning that the psukim are actually implying there's two options. Either you could pay with money or you could pay with the best of your land. 
problem with this is it doesn't fit with the brisa because Esaver of Nachman the Rafuna from Nachman Esther Rafuna the brisa said Yashiv Larabas Shavikesef the brisa said Yashiv the verse that's extra teaches us you can even pay back with movables Afilusubin and you could even pay back with subin which is animal feed so what do you mean either land or monies you see you could even pay back with uh, low grade uh, animal feed. So the more answer is Rafuna explains The Pasik is teaching us that if you don't have the best of your land, you don't have money, so then you could pay back with anything and even Subin. So but if you don't have that, of course you should pay back with that. Meaning the damage, the Nizak wants to get paid back. So what's the Khirish then of the Pasuk? So you may have said So you may have said that the damager is responsible to go sell off proper, sell off whatever it is that he has, get the money out of it, and then use that money to pay the nizak. And therefore, the Torah is teaching us, no, you could actually pay back with those subin directly. That would also be acceptable. Amr Ravasi, Ravasi follows this psak of Ravun. Ravasi says, He says a very vague statement that you're going to have to clarify now. Monies are considered like karka, like land. What is he referring to when he says monies are like land? If it means when the damager creates this damage, so not only can you pay back with land, but you could also pay back with money. If that's what he means, that's the psaq we just said in Ravuna. And if that's what it is, he should have followed by saying, means Ravasi should support Ravuna. Why does he say it as an independent statement? So Ella the Gemara goes on now trying to figure out what did he mean exactly when he said, Ksafim is like karkan. So let's go through a few other options. <clears throat> Rather, what Rev Asi is referencing is this concept of two brothers who divided up the property of their father after he passed away. One brother took the lands, and the other one took the corollary amount of the monies. Well, let's see. There's going to be benefits in each. We'll see. Protections, we'll see. Now, a creditor of the father shows up who had a lien against the properties before the father passed away, now he can't claim money, but he could claim properties. So he took away all the properties from the brother. So you see already what the benefit of taking monies might be. He took all the properties from the brother. Let's see. So he took away all the properties from that first brother who had taken the properties. So what Rav, Rav Asi is saying is, money is like properties. It means, that the first brother who had taken all of the properties can now claim half of the monies from the second brother who had taken monies. That's what he meant when he said, that's what it means, is that really we both have to pay this debt. You took all the money, so now I get half of the monies back. So the Gemara says, there's two ways the Gemara is going to refute this as an option to what Ravasi meant to say. The first way the Gemara goes is, Pshita, it's obvious that he should split it. Hi, brav, hi, loy, brav. Is this a son and isn't this not a son? Meaning, they're both responsible to cover the debt of their father if it was against the properties. Happens to be one took property and one took monies. It would be obvious then, says the Gemara, that one brother, the first brother, would claim half the monies of the second. Now that's the first way it refutes this possibility. The other way is, you go the other direction, is actually it's illogical that he should take any money from the second brother. Because exactly like you just referenced. The second brother could say, I specifically took money with a calculation in mind. What was it? That if my money is stolen, 
I knew that I wouldn't go back. Imagine my money stolen. Am I going to go back to you and claim half properties? Of course not. That's a downside of claiming money. And that's why you took properties. There's a negativity. That if it's claimed from you, you can't claim anything from me. So actually the Gemara says it's illogical then that the first one should claim from the, the second one. So therefore that can't be the Pshat and Ravasi's statement either. So again, so rather what is it referring to when Ravasi says that monies are like properties? So rather it's for a different reference of brothers. Two brothers who divided up properties of their fathers after his passing. Now a creditor of their father showed up. He claimed the properties of one of the brothers. Okay, that's what he did. So the Gemara says what would come out is that the first brother, one second, Oh, so what's going to happen over here is as follows. When one of the brothers claims from the other, excuse me, when, when the creditor claims from the one brother's properties, the first brother will go back to the second brother and be able to claim something back. Now, what will he be able to claim back? So we'll see. Ravasi is going to hold either he could claim back money or properties. But that's going to be the chiddush, is that the brother who was claimed from, his properties were removed, can claim from the second brother either monies or properties, as we'll see in a moment. So the Gemara says, but Ravasi already illustrated this halach, as we'll see in a moment. To Itmar, as it was stated, brothers who divided up their properties of their father, and the Balchov, the creditor of their father, came and claimed properties from one of them. Rav Amar So Rav says, what happens now is, we look at it as if the original division that they had made is considered nullified. And we'll explain as we go through this, but Rav says it was, it's nullified and they have to re-divide up the remaining properties that exist now. Shmuel Amar Viter. Shmuel says no, Viter, he forfeits, meaning the brother whose properties were claimed forfeits whatever he had, second brother keeps his properties, first brother forfeits whatever it was that was taken from him. Ravasi, Amr, now we're going to go with the first pshat in Rashi. There's two pshatim, but Ravasi says, is that the first brother can claim from the second either a quarter of the karka of the lands or a quarter of the monies that that brother had. Now this is going to be the focal point, which is we see there's an equivalency between land and monies. That's the point. But first we have to explain the machlokis. So what's the pshat? Rav Amar Batla Machlokis. Rav says when that first brother is claimed from, the original division is considered nullified, and they have to redivide it up. Why is that? So the Mepharshim speak out, Rav holds yesh brera. Rav holds that we look at the divisions as, as if there were properties that were meant to go to brother one and to brother two. Ha there's retroactive clarification when they divide it up, but that's the property that was meant to go to me. So kasava rav holds They're considered like inheritors, and therefore they have an equal responsibility to pay back the debts of their father. Now what happens is, when he claims all of the properties of brother number one, it shows that was not the right division. It means it shows the brayer that we thought was inaccurate, so therefore they have to redivide it after the fact. 
Shmuel Amar, but Shmuel holds Viter that the first brother whose properties were claimed from this creditor actually forfeits his properties. And the Mepharshim say, because Shmuel holds Ein Breira. So therefore, Shmuel holds what essentially happens is you take half, I take half. It's, it's not necessarily true that that's what was coming to you and that's what was coming to me, but that's what we decided. And Kasavar, Shmuel holds, Oachem Shechalk, Lekuchos. Essentially, they're just considered buyers. And it's like purchasing without responsibility. So you took this, I took that. We don't owe any, each other anything. And therefore, if your properties are claimed, that's too, uh, that's bad luck for you. Rav Asi says that the first brother can claim from the second either a quarter of the land or a quarter of the monies. Because he is a suffix. If they're considered like Yorshim, in which case, like, like Rav, the first brother should be able to claim half of whatever the second brother has. Or are they buyers and therefore you can't claim anything? So therefore this is a suffix. Could he claim 50% or 0%? So therefore he takes 25%. Which Rashi explains based on the rule that it's considered suffix mamon. And when you have a suffix mamon, you split it. So therefore if it's 50% in the case of suffix, he gives 25% of the first brother and that's that. But what's the point? You see Rav says second brother can pay the first brother either with property or with money. So you see he already illustrates this principle. That can't be what he's saying here. Elamai so the Gemara says Elamai harein kikarka. So rather what does Ravasi mean when he says monies are like karka? The Gemara answers like we said originally it means if someone damaged another person not only could he pay back with the best of his land but he could also pay back with money. Which means he's really supporting the original contention of Ravuna. Ravuna, so that's the position of Ravuna. Why didn't the Gemara say Vachain? Why didn't Ravasi say Vachain Omar Ravasi? Should have said that in the Gemara. So Aim of the Gemara meant to say Vachain Omar Ravasi. Okay, it means he really did support the contention of Ravuna. It just said it in, in this uh, way that was a little misleading, but that's really what he meant to say. Okay, moving on to a side point now. We talked about fractions. So now the Gemara goes on to another halacha about fractions, but it's a completely unrelated halacha. The very bottom of Tesamad Aleph now. Amr Vizera, Amr Afuna, Bimitzvah That regarding spending money on mitzvahs, you spend up to a third. Now, this is a vague statement. So, my shlish, what does it mean a third? Turning to Tesamad Beis. If it means a third of the monies of your house, it means a third of your assets, a third of everything. You could spend. You spend up to a third of your prop. You have to spend up to a third of your properties. That's what it would imply. So the Gemara says Elameyatab. If that's the assumption, it would come out that if three mitzvahs come your way, you have to buy a lulav, you have to buy a sukkah, and you have to buy tefillin. What's going to happen? So you have to spend the entire house. That's impossible. That doesn't make sense. So Ella the Gemara says Amar Bizeir Mitzvah. We're talking about here is the concept of hidr mitzvah. Where does the concept of Hidr Mitzvah come from? So we know in Parshas B'Shalach it says, Zeke Elivan Veyu. This is my God and I will glorify Him. The Gemara in Sukkah teaches us there's a concept of beautifying Mitzvahs, not to, just to buy a lulav, a beautiful lulav, not just to build a sukkah, but build a beautiful sukkah, etc. Or as Rashi brings examples, if you have two Sifrei Torah, we'll see in a moment. So it says Rabbi Zeira, Behidr Mitzvah, Adshlish Bemitzvah. So it should be a third of the value more than the Mitzvah. So Rashi explains what does that mean if there's two Sifrei Torah to purchase. It's a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing to buy a Sefer Torah, actually. So, there's two Sefer Torah on the market to purchase. And you could spend up to a third for one of them, which is nicer. So there, the, the, that's what that's what Rebzera was referring to over here when he said, Ad Shlish, means you should spend up to a third more if it's a more beautiful Sefer Torah to purchase the, the second. Limit. 
right more than that uh, so more than that it seems like you don't have to spend we'll see in a moment but there might be there might or, well well it's it's it hits hid or mitzvah just like when a beautiful lulav you could buy a basic. You could buy a basic lulav. You're right, but it's saying up to a third is us. Oh, so we'll see in a moment. There's another distinction between a third and more than that. But uh, here we're saying is that's considered the appropriate thing to spend up to a third. Atshlish a third of the value of the mitzvah. So the Gemara wants to know numbers now. When we say a third, does it mean a third from within or a third from outside? So what does that mean? Let's say one Sefer Torah is $600. And, uh, so Sefer Torah is $600. And we see you spend a third more. So does it mean a third of 600 Now a third of 600 is 200 So you would spend 800 That would be milagav. Milibar would mean when you add the money, it's going to be a third of the total, which means you add another 300, which is the third of 900. So then it would emerge. That, that's a shyless. So and once this take, we leave this unresolved. I don't understand what this third is. Well, I said you have to spend a third for hit or mitzvah. You have to do a hit or mitzvah. So hit or mitzvah, in general, you go to the store to buy a lulav. It, it's, it's a mitzvah. The Torah tells us a beautiful thing to do. It's called hit or mitzvah. Are you mechuyev to do hit or mitzvah? I don't know. It's a good question. So spending only yeah. one fifth rather than one third. Is that a hit or mitzvah? Mm-hmm. Or I would imagine your 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 bipashtis. Your what, what Rashi's example is: there's two options in front of you. So the idea is it's appropriate to spend a third more when it comes to the hitter mitzvah versus spending on the basic the type of thing. I would imagine if you spend one fifth on hitter mitzvah, it's also something. Yes, but we're saying over here the nice thing, the appropriate thing to do is to spend up to a third. Are you mechoyev? I don't know. It's an interesting question. Says the Gemara, Bimarov Amri, but the Gemara gives you encouragement here. Listen to this. In Eretz Yisrael, they said, The way Rashi learns is like this. If you spend a third more on Hitter Mitzvah, up to a third, Mishaloi. So then that's your own Cheshbon. What do you mean your own Cheshbon? In Shamayim, they'll reward you. You're not going to get rewarded for that in this world. But Mikan Ve'elech, if you spend more than a third for Hitter Mitzvah, Mishaloi Kadosh Baruch then it's Hashem's calculation. Hashem says. No, of the, of the, like you said, of the item, of the item, whatever it is. But the point is, if you spend more than a third, so then, Baruch what does it mean? It means that Hashem will even reward you in this world for that kind of spending that you're doing. So it's very interesting. Gemara here seems to be saying you're even allowed to spend more than a third. It's not like a limit. It's not a cap. And you can get it rewarded uh, nicely as well. All right, let's go back to it. Says the Mishnah, fourth section of the day. Now, this Mishnah is very vague. Well, today we'll focus in the fifth section momentarily on the first line. Says the Mishnah, Any scenario that I am responsible for guarding something, meaning I have property responsibility on my item, I have caused its damage, and therefore I'd have to pay back if it damages. This line is also very vague. If I, am, if I caused part of the damage, so I'm responsible in protecting the entirety of the damage, like I prepared all of the damage. That second line we'll discuss later on Daf Yud, but the first line we'll discuss momentarily today. Now the Mishnah tells us five items that I have responsibility and implies when I would not have responsibility. Properties that don't have me'ila means properties that are not hektish, as opposed to hektish, where we know if I damage hektish, I'm not responsible. Also, properties that are owned by a Jew, as opposed to properties owned by a Goy, I'm not responsible. 
Nechasma miyuchadim, properties that are designated, that are owned versus hefker. And if it damages in any place other than my own location, meaning if the Nizuk's animal walked into my house and my animal damaged it, I could say, why is your ox here? I'm not responsible. As well as the domain that's owned by both the damagee and the damager. We'll see what exactly is the story there in the Gemara. So in all these cases, if the person's items damage, the damager is responsible to pay. Now earlier we learned, Shmuel explained at least, this line includes Karen. Even though we had it in the first Mishnah, there it just teaches us the general idea of paying back if you if you but here it includes, as the as Rashi points out, even you're responsible even for Karen. That was because Shmuel learnt Mava is Shane. Rav learnt Mava includes all three. Uh, Shor, excuse me, includes all three. Sorry. Shmuel learns that Shor includes uh, Regel and Mava includes Shane. So Karen is included a Kishhezik Havamazik Lashalim. Rav learned Kishhezik Havamazik Lashalim can't be included in Karen because that's already included in Shor. So we'll see in the Gemara what he holds that includes. Tashlume Nezek Bimetava Aretz. You have to pay back with the best of the land because, as we learned, the Pasuk says, Metava Aretz, Metav Karma, Metav Sadeh Yashalim. Fine. Says the Gemara Tanarabana, Brisa wants to explain the fifth section of the day, this first line in the Mishnah. The, the Brisa quotes the Mishnah. It says, This is a very vague statement. It says, Anything that I'm responsible in guarding it, I've prepared its damage, meaning I'm responsible for property of mine that damages. Now, the simple pshat is, I have an ox that goes and damages somebody, that's my property that damages, I have to pay back. But the fact that it uses this extra terminology, the Gemara understands there's an additional layer here, that even though I've done some sort of partial shmira, since it's my item, I have to pay back. So what is that referring to? Ketzad says the brysa, uh, and we're going to have to explain two ways of explaining this brysa. Shor ubor and If I have a shore or a bore, I have an ox or I have a pit, and I gave it over to be protected, to be watched by a chereshotivikatan. So I gave it over to a not a, not a, a reliable shomer, exactly. Vehezeko, and they ended up damaging chayev l'shalim the owner of the shore, well, let's see. The owner of the shore or the boar is responsible to pay. As opposed to fire, if I give fire over to a cherishot of a katan and he lights up somebody's property, I am not chayef to pay. So now there's two ways to understand this brisa, but let's try to see. First, the Gemara analyzes this, con- this the, con- the, the contrast. Well, what are we talking about in this brisa? If it's talking about where the pit is, the, the ox is bound, means it's tied up, and the pit is covered, so they're not, they don't have a propensity in this context to damage. So the kavasa gabe'esh, the corollary to that by fire would be gacheles, where you give the cheresh a gacheles. Now a gacheles is a hot coal, but there's no flame, meaning it's not in a state that would currently damage. So ma'ish what's the distinction between the cases? Why are you chayev in the first two of shor and bor and exempt in the, se- in the third of esh? Lachari you should be exempt in all of them. Ella the Gemara says, Bishor Mutter Abor Megula. Okay, so maybe it's a case where you gave him an untied ox and you gave him an uncovered pit. So those are damaging things. That's why you'd be Chayev. The Kavasagabe'esh, the corollary by Esh would be Shalheves. You gave the Cheresh, you gave the Shotavikatan a flaming coal, a fire. You gave him something, a fire. So, why would you be exempt by Esh? Lachari, you should be Chayev when you give him such a thing. And we have a Raya. And this. 
Oh, so let's see. And, and we have a raya to this later, later on Nun Testament Beis. We're going to have machlokas about this. The Mishnah says your potter, if you give the cherishot to the katan eish, the ha'amar eish lakish, mishmei de chizkia, and a chafezim Beis, and also Nun Testament Beis, eish lakish says in the name of chizkia there, loishanu, we only say that your potter medine shamayim when you give this over to the cherish, el shamas, legacheles veliba. If you gave over a coal to the cherish and he lit it up and then damaged, avol shalel, have eschayev. But certainly if you gave the cherish, a flame, and he went and burnt something, you set it up. So therefore, you are certainly responsible. So then the Gemara says, "My time." and what's the reason for that? Why does Reish Lakish and Amar say you're responsible? Because you essentially prepared the damage. So what's the scenario then of this Brisa that contrasts Shor and Bor to Eish? So the Gemara answers, We have two ways of learning this. The first way will go in Reish Lakish, Amar Chizkiah, like we just explained. The case is talking about Bishor Kastro Bar Really, the case is you gave him a bound ox and a covered pit. So it was protected to some degree. And they therefore, we're going to see in a moment the distinction. And the corollary by Eish would be where it was a coal, and that's why you're putter, because it wasn't something that you had given him that was damaging initially. I you asked, what's the difference? Why are you chayyab by Shor and Bor? They're protected. They're bound up. It's covered. So the Gemara answers, the distinction is, what, what uh, led to the damage ultimately here? Shor, Darki Lintuke. Regarding the Shor, its way is to untie itself. Meaning you can shake around and untie itself. Similarly, Bor, Darki Linture. The cover naturally falls off. Means people are walking around, the cover can get kicked off, or by the vibrations of the ground, it can fall in. So therefore, the damage that was caused by those things is more causation directly applicable to you as the one who set this situation up. But gacheles, regarding a coal, if you leave a coal alone, nobody is actively, intentionally flaming it up using bellows. What's it called? Bellows? To flame it up. It'll just dim and burn out. So therefore, what ended up happening now is like this. Regarding the pit and regarding the shore, even if the cherish ultimately went and did it, you'll still be responsible because it's something that would have could potentially have happened in a direct way, cause applicable to you. Whereas regarding the Aish, that's something that would have just burnt out by itself unless the Kherish had physically been involved in flaming it up, putting it in somebody else's field. Therefore, Rish Lakish would say you're not responsible in the case of just a coal. Now that's in Rish Lakish Amar Chizkiah. But the Rav Yochan, Rav Yochanan argues there in the Gemara and says, you're only exempt, you're, sorry, he says you're exempt even if you give him a Shalheves, even if you give that Cheresh a flame. So the Rav Yochanan, the Amra Filumasar Lo Shalheves Nami Pater, he says even if you give him a flame. So the Kavase Hacha, what will be the corollary here in this Brisa? It would be where you give the cherish an untied ox and an uncovered pit. So then, what's the difference that you're chayiv in the cases of shor and bor and exempt in the case of esh when it's a flame? So the Gemara answers, Hasam tzavsa de cherish kagarim. In regards to esh, the grasp of the cherish causes the damage. Meaning, esh by itself isn't going to go and spread to someone else's field. He went and took that fire and put it on someone else's property. Hachab, regarding the shore and bore, light tzavsa de cherish kagarim. The animal itself went out and damaged, or someone fell into the pit. It's not the cherish's handle or the cherish's momentum that caused the damage, and therefore you'll be chayev in the case of shore and bore. You'll be 
be exempt because there's something in between. There's some intermediary, which is the cherish in the case of Aish, causing the damage. Therefore, you won't be responsible. And that's how we illustrate our Mishnah. So there's two ways to explain our Mishnah. We're going to stop here at Tanur Abanan, towards the bottom of Testament Base. We'll pick up tomorrow with Daf Yud. Everyone have a wonderful day.